So you know what they say about the uh, best laid plans of mice and men? Well, it's a couple minutes after 10 o'clock on this Friday, the 13th, June 13th. And while for the last few days I've been looking forward to sitting down and talking about some books with you guys, it's now 10 o'clock on a Friday night and I hadn't even started yet. And yeah, I got so many distractions. I mean, first off, the Kings game, game five, went into double overtime. And then we picked up a whole bunch of stuff from my grandmother's house, um, lots of pictures and going through a ton of pictures. And now, 10 o'clock, finally I get to sit down and uh, talk to you guys about the books I've been reading. It's been a very busy couple of weeks, uh, four books plus. I'm almost done with the fifth one. The fifth one is really the, the focus of the last month or so of my reading the uh, anthology of short stories called Face Off, which I'll get to at another time. Otherwise, we'll be here for two and a half hours and nobody wants to listen to me talk for that long. But anyways, um, I got through three more books off of the checklist of authors that are going to be at that Thriller Fest. And I think for now, I think I'm done. Um, so the book Face Off has 11 short stories by 22 authors. And as of now, I've read books by 16 of those authors, only Six of them, I guess, I've not read before. Um, M.J. Rose, Linda Fairstein, um, T. Jefferson Parker, Raymond Corey, Joseph Finder, and one other woman, I think. I don't remember. But I'm really proud of, of myself for having gotten through as many books as I did get through. I read a lot of books by authors I'd never read before. Um, so we're going to talk about those in a little, in, in a little bit. Um, first thing I wanted to talk about was a book that I, I kind of teased about at the end of last podcast, which was the book The Devil's Workshop by Alex Grecian. And if you've been listening, you know that Alex Grecian is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors because of the genre that he writes. He writes the Victorian thriller set in London right around the time of and just after the time of Jack the Ripper, the cobblestone streets, the dark, foggy... Uh, alleyways. Um, just a, a wonderful genre that I, I seem to have taken to over the last year or so, or a couple years. And this book came out uh, only a couple weeks ago and is the third book in his series involving Scotland Yard's Murder Squad. Now, the first book in the series called The Yard actually started right after the Jack the Ripper murders seemed to have ended with the creation of this murder squad at Scotland Yard to address what was becoming, unfortunately, um, a problem for the Victorian age of London, which was uh, murders. And so the first and second books, first book, The Yard, second book, The Black Country, dealt with uh, the, the evolution of the murder squad and the main characters, Inspector Day and Constable um, Hammersmith, um, and various of the other characters. And yet you knew in those first two books that the, 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 the presence of Jack the Ripper was there. You never quite knew where. You knew that there was there was a allusion to him. You just got the feeling that there was going to be some sort of a comeuppance about him or his character was going to come back. And in the Devil's Workshop, we finally get to see um, our esteemed heroes tackling the character of Jack the Ripper. But in order to keep it kind of fresh, not just Jack the Ripper comes back, there's been no explanation of where he's been, um, Grecian actually provides a a cover story or a basis for where Jack the Ripper has been since the murders had been um, had seemed to have stopped. Now I'm not going to really go too much into the details of all of that, but what I'm going to tell you is that it really brought the characters together with the Jack the Ripper character, with a whole bunch of other criminals who were recently escaped from prison. Um, the escape, by the way, was with assistance from what I would call like a vigilante group. And this vigilante group basically decided that they didn't feel that uh, the justice system in London at the time was appropriately dealing with these hardened criminals, and so they were taking care of these criminals on their own. And they identified a select few criminals who were in prison and decided that they were going to stage a prison break so that these criminals, these select few, could be captured outside the walls of the prison and dealt with by this vigilante group personally. And what you also find out is that this vigilante group had actually caught Jack the Ripper and it had him stored away for the last year and a half in a prison um, of their own with, I guess, ultimate designs that they were going to do away with him. But of course, as you can imagine, all hell breaks loose, some of the criminals get away, Jack the Ripper gets away, and uh, begins to wreak his havoc on London. Now, his havoc 
reeking doesn't exactly take the form of the type of murders that he had been committing during his heyday um, but it seems as if he's just getting settled he's getting back into the groove of things and reestablishing himself in london before he assuming uh, assumingly takes on his um reign of terror yet again uh, kind of brings the first and the third books back together with the main the main bad guy from the first book also coming back into play in this third book um and just uh, I, i've talked about it before as far as um, alex grecian's books they move so quickly they jump around between all the characters um and it's just such an enjoyable read that that i found myself just sitting for an hour at a time not realizing that the time had even passed and before i knew it uh, the book was over and um it was one of those things where I wish that the book was longer because of how much I enjoy it, because of how difficult I've it's been for me to find really strong books of this genre. I know that when this book came out, Alex Grecian was doing a lot of um, speaking engagements and tours, although I think he's primarily in the Midwest. Um, and one of the people that he happened to be speaking with was an author by the name of I believe it's Will Thomas, and I did read the first book by Will Thomas. Um, I think it was called Some Danger Involved, and it's a, you know, contemporary author's attempt at creating a Sherlock Holmes type of a mystery with a, a main character and a sidekick and that, and that kind of thing, like a Dr. Ho a Holmes, Dr. Watson thing. And I really didn't quite enjoy the book as much as I would have hoped, so I hadn't read any further books. Um, but I've really experimented in trying to find authors that will connect with me on the level of this type of a genre and i got you know lynn shepherd somewhat because i heard the timing of her books there's a um, the timing just feels a little bit different from the the alex grecian novels um and, and other than that i've really been somewhat um stymied by by the books that that uh, i've been looking for so I'm just uh, uh, unfortunately um, disappointed in the, uh, in the in the fact that it's going to be another year or so until Alex Grecian comes out with another book, and that's uh, that's distressing because I know that I'll be oh at some point looking for a book like this again and will not be satisfied until the next Alex Grecian book comes out. Um, but that's uh, the Devil's Workshop by Alex Grecian. A great cover, by the way, really great cover. The top hits in the kind of a, a yellowish orange haze like a sunset um behind um big ben and parliament up at the top and on the bottom we have the um the typical jack the ripper ish type character the coat the top hat walking through a dark alley with light facing him um and you know cobblestone cobbled walls um yeah just awesome you know just awesome i, I wish I, I wish there were more this is one of those situations where I'm glad that I got in on the ground floor with Alex Grecian, but there's something enjoyable about coming to an author when he's he or she is 10 books in that you know if you really enjoyed the book, you're going to have a whole lot more books to choose from, um, as opposed to in this situation. I, I've read them each of them as they've come out, and then I've had to wait another year until the next book comes out. So that was my one deviation from the Thriller Fest authors. Um, and then it was back to it with what ended up being three more books by three different authors I'd not read before who all figure into the Thriller Fest and figure into the anthology face-off. The next book that I read was John Sanford, uh, Rule of, Rules of Prey, involving his detective in Minneapolis named Lucas Davenport. Now, I had a difficulty with this character because I couldn't help but think of Denzel Washington. And it didn't help that I went to imdb.com to see if any of John Sanford's books had been adapted to movies or, or miniseries. Um, and it turns out that two of the books had been adapted. I don't remember specifically which ones they were. But one of them it was uh, the character of Lucas Davenport was cast um, with Eric LaSalle from um, Coming to America and uh, ER. And the other adaptation had Mark Harmon as Lucas Davenport. So not really either one of whom could I really picture when I was reading the book. So it defaulted to Denzel Washington. And as I'm reading this book, I keep reminding myself, so you can't picture Denzel Washington. You can't picture Denzel Washington because I knew that in the face-off anthology, the characters of Lucas Davenport and Lincoln Rhyme get pitted against each other. 
And I've already established or seen Lincoln rhyme as Denzel Washington because Lincoln rhyme from the Bone Collector. Denzel Washington played him in the movie. And now I'm thinking about Lucas Davenport and I'm thinking about Denzel Washington. And I'm wondering when I'm reading Face Off how I'm going to be able to tell the characters apart because I'm going to see Denzel Washington in both roles. Um, and in fact, I, I did read that uh, short story in Face Off a couple days ago and I absolutely had that problem. It very, very much so to have the problem of, of picturing the same actor playing both roles. Um, but this is the first novel involving du Lucas Davenport, and obviously he's an already established uh, um, detective in the Minneapolis Police Department. And the concept is there's a serial killer on the loose, and the police don't know where to turn, so they go to du Lucas Davenport to save the day. Now, it's a little bit different about this character as opposed to a lot of other hero police detectives because in this situation Lucas Davenport seems to have um, a golden ticket. I mean he can do whatever he wants. The chief of the police kind of defers to him on everything. Um, this isn't a situation of a rogue cop who doesn't play by the rules and, and is always butting heads with his superiors. In fact they defer to him on a lot of things and even though there is a, a chief or a sergeant or whatever he was who is kind of spearheading or controlling or overseeing the investigation he really does defer to lucas in a whole lot of situations i had a couple of major problems with the book now this was a a 480 page book 479 page book and i mentioned it before to me the thriller mystery book is typically at its best when it's between 350 to 400 pages. Go any further, any longer, and my concern is that the author will be incapable of sustaining the tension and, and intensity of the book. Now, I have talked in, in the last couple of weeks about a couple of other books where the author actually did a very good job um, taking a longer book and um, sustaining the intensity. This one, it, it just didn't do it for me. Um, You've got a lot of portions of the book where the main character is doing nothing. Um, he seemed to be in, involved in too many romantic engagements with various different people. Um, a couple of them were um, news reporters, and then he's got the the romantic engagement with one of the first one of the victims of the killer, who, by the way, was not successful. This was the victim that survived. Um, and it, it was kind of just all over the place. There was um, portions of the book where, where it would be a, a Thursday or Friday afternoon and Lucas would say to his boss, you know what, I'm going to head up I'm gonna head up to the lake, my cabin in the lake, for a couple days. It's like, okay, we know that there's a madman on the loose, but you're just going up to the lake to chill out for a couple of days? You're not doing anything? It didn't seem as if there was an active focus on detective work. After the murder was committed... The um, police and Lucas would go to the crime scene, they'd walk the crime scene, they'd get the evidence, and then there really wouldn't be anything else going on. Lucas and the other cops would look at each other and say, well, um, we're not able to figure out what happened, so um, I'm going to take a weekend and head up to the lake, and I'll be back on Tuesday. And seriously, that happened a couple of times. Um, I thought it was really odd that he had this romantic um, the sexual relationship with one of the victims. Um, it, part of it was pretty obvious that they were going to use one of the one of the um, television reporters as bait. Um, the, the book was written in 1993, I think. 1989, 1989. So we're talking about a book that's 25 years old, and the technology and the the police tactics are are clearly dated. There's no cell phones. There's you know. Uh, <laughs> picking locks and the way that he determines that there's nobody at home is he he calls and listens to the phone ring i mean there's there's a whole bunch of stuff like that that's that's pretty um pretty outdated at, at this point um there were some bizarre and to me unnecessary um interludes about lucas davenport being a video game creator and some of his efforts to create the video games um and it just it just seemed to kind of go without really having a direction. And I think it was around page 400 or so where the, you know, Lucas's supervisor says to him, um, how are we going to solve this? What are we going to do? We can't just sit around waiting for um, 
another murder because they obviously were not capable of solving the crime at the at the murder scene and and lucas says something to the effect of um well sometimes we just have to get lucky and that's what happened and it kind of felt um unresolved that the hero who had spent 400 and some odd pages trying to um trying to i guess solve the murder um, at the end of the day, he says, you know, so, sometimes these things just require a stroke of luck, and they get that stroke of luck. And the stroke of luck was pretty uh, bizarre and out there. It didn't really have much of a, uh, a, a strong pull to me. It didn't feel like it was finished. It didn't feel like um, it didn't feel like it was a, a, a satisfying resolution, a satisfying piece of luck. Um, And it just didn't sit well with me. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I'd hoped that it would be darker. I'd hoped that it had been more fast-paced. Um, obviously, uh, Lucas Davenport has been in numerous, numerous novels, 15, 20 novels, something like that. I wasn't looking to this book as a start for me to get involved in another series of books. I'm glad that I read it. I'm glad that I have a familiarity with the Lucas Davenport character because when I read the short story in Face Off, I was already familiar with the character. And and I anticipate that the books do get better as they go on further. There's a very good, at least the version I have, an introduction to the novel from the author himself, John Sanford, and how he came about to write the book. And I really enjoyed that. I thought it was good. It, it kind of personalized the book for me. It, it felt as if the author was talking directly to me and saying, this is my baby. I want you to read it. I'm presenting it to you. This is the tri trials and travails that I went through in order to get the book published. I thought that was really a, a kind of a cool thing. And this is um, a, whatever it was, a, a reissue of the very first book, a republication, something along those lines. So I thought that was nice. I liked the, the fact that the author took the reader into his confidence and said, this is how I came about writing what I write, and this is how I came up with the story and, and that kind of things. Um, but I just, I, it, it was so choppy to me. At times, I felt like it was dragging. Um, the murderer was, was a good character. I wish we'd seen more of him. There's this whole thing about the rules of prey, that the murderer leaves these um, these notes on the victims that are these rules of, of rules that he follows when he makes kills such as don't take the murder weapon with you and don't make it predictable and all these kinds of things and i would have liked to have that have, have had that aspect of the story further developed there had to have been some connection that that lucas would have been able to tell the uh, or to to determine the killer or track the killer using these tactics or, or using an analysis of these notes but it it never really went that far um and at the end of the day that's all it was was luck luck was what tipped off lucas to the identity of the killer and um it kind of just quickly quickly resolved itself resolved itself from there so that was rules of prey by lucas davenport the next book i read was a book that i didn't expect to like honestly did not expect to like and um, I kind of did. So I'm not going to say I was overjoyed by it, but I kind of liked it. As I take a sip of my uh, Basil Hayden bourbon. Uh, this was Heather Graham's book, Let the Dead Sleep. And it's from 2013, so it's a, a, a relatively new book. And it's a relatively new series of books involving the characters of Michael Quinn and Danny Cafferty. And Danny Quinn is a character that appears in one of the face-off stories as well. His character uh, faces off with uh, Repairman Jack from the F. Paul Wilson books. So one of the things that, well, two of the things that initially made me reticent about reading this book. One, published by Harlequin, Harlequin Mira novel. Automatically a red flag. I don't read Harlequin romance novels. I don't read chick lit. I don't want to read books with dudes with bulging pecs and long flowing hair and, you know, swashbuckling and whatever it is. That's not my thing. The other aspect of the book that I was a little hesitant about is it's written by a woman. And I've, you know, I've got my um, peccadillos about women authors. But I had committed to read as many of the authors and face off as possible, Heather Graham being one of them. And the 
story of the book actually seemed kind of intriguing. Uh, it has to do with um, some sort of a mythical, powerful object that uh, gets stolen and the people who have it end up becoming murderers and, and things like that. Um, it takes place in New Orleans, which I'm not really a huge fan of New Orleans stories. I don't really like a lot of the Southern culture voodoo type stuff, although some of it can be really interesting. And there were aspects of this book that were really interesting having to do with the New Orleans culture and, and the voodoo and stuff. Um, so the idea is that there's this bust, um, which to me means, I guess, the top half torso of some sort of a person in history um, that's uh, uh, carved out of some sort of a stone material. So there's this bust, and everybody who holds the bust gets taken over by it and ends up committing crimes. And um, Michael Quinn, who is a former and uh, New Orleans police officer, is now a private detective, he's trying to track the location of the bust so that he can um, obtain it and destroy it. Of course, the bad guys want to get their hands on it, and the... Um, character of Danny Cafferty comes into play because she owns a curios shop in New Orleans that she inherited from her father and some woman who claims to have the bust comes to see Danny Cafferty and says you've got to take this thing away now we don't know at the time but we find out very soon into the story that Danny Cafferty's father Angus and Michael Quinn work together very closely in a lot of adventures and Michael Quinn expects well doesn't expect but um, it ends up turning out that Danny takes the place of her father and becomes Michael Quinn's pseudo-partner. So kind of an intriguing idea, a lot of paranormal stuff, um, not a whole lot of description of the bad guys and where they came from and what happens when they have the bus. There's a little bit of that where the characters have the bus next to them and then believe that the bus actually takes the form of a real person and starts to you know, the, the people start to hallucinate, I think. And then they're told that they have to commit this crime. And a couple of the characters end up killing themselves because they don't want to commit the crime that they're being told to commit. Uh, lots of murders take place of people who are trying to get the bust. And then it's a question of where's the bust now and who's really trying to get it. It involves local politics. It does involve a little bit of voodoo. The end of the book kind of felt like a scene out of Dragnet where they've got the movie Dragnet with... Um, Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd, where you've got this major gathering of all these paganists, voodoo worshippers, whatever you want to call them, and there's got to be a sacrifice, and there's got to be, you know, this whole big thing. Um, and our hero, Michael Quinn, goes incognito to infiltrate this gathering to try and stop the proceeding, stop the sacrifice, and take the bust and destroy it. And, of course, as you can no doubt expect, Danny Cafferty ends up being kidnapped and she's the one that's to be sacrificed. That's the book. And why it took 375 pages to tell that story, I don't know. It felt longer than 375 pages. It had slow stops, slow stops. There were some unfortunately necessary portions of the book where... Danny and Michael Quinn kind of start their budding romance. There's a lot of sexual tension. I got to tell you, for somebody who writes for Harlequin novels, and I understand has a ton of romance books under her belt. I mean, she's written like 100 books or something like that. The love scenes were terrible. They were so bad. They were so cheesy. They were so um, unerotic and unappealing. It was kind of like, what am I reading here? This this isn't doing it for me. Come on, give me something. Because apparently this Danny Cafferty chick supposed to be really hot. And she keeps talking about how hot Michael Quinn is. But there wasn't anything particularly hot about the romance. But you could tell there was sexual tension, which I thought was, was well done. But so here was my major problem with the book. At the end of the story... At the last five pages or so of the book, there's a gathering of all of the survivors, you know, all of the heroes, whatever you want to call them. And one of the characters goes and basically does this couple of paragraph monologue where he explains everything that happened in the book. And he says, so then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, 
and this happened, and then this happened, and it basically goes through every step of the book that we just read. And I found that very interesting because I, I it, it occurred to me that it's possible, and I certainly had this. I couldn't rip. I couldn't figure out what happened. The the descriptions of the characters and the way the story was told. It it got to be so much focused on the bust and not enough focused on the motives of the characters or what the ultimate intentions were and how the bad guy ended up getting involved with the bust in the first place. And so on page 373, the, this guy says, if I understand this right, blah, 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 blah. And he recounts over the course of a one very long paragraph of a full page, talks about the whole entire story and says, so this is how it all worked out. That's the best I can figure it at any rate. And I sat there thinking, you know what? If you have to have one of your characters restate the entire book because you're concerned that the readers didn't understand it, then there's something wrong. And that's truly what this was, unfortunately. I got to just right before that part of the book, I got almost, you know, almost to the end. And I said, okay, so why did this guy care? And how did this guy find out about the bust? And how was he involved in it? And why did this whole thing happen like that? And then this this character says, here, if I understand correctly, this is what happened. And it was kind of like, yeah, thank you, because I didn't quite get it. Um, so I don't know. It, it was okay, average. Uh, I really liked the character of Michael Quinn, and in fact, in the face-off story with he and Repairman Jack, I really enjoyed that that book or, or that story. Um, do I want to read another one? Not particularly. I don't. I don't really feel that I need to. Uh, so the last book that I read in preparation for Face Off and Thriller Fest was Night of the Living Dummy by R. L. Stein, and yes, it's a kids' book, and it's written in nineteen. 1993, and it's a scholastic book. So it's, you know, it's for kids, like the hula hoop, you know, for kids. And it's about these two girls, twin sisters, Lindy and Chris, and they're identical twins, as far as I could tell, although one has long hair, one has short hair. They're 12 years old. They go snooping around an empty house or house that's being built or whatever it is, and in the dumpster, Lindy finds a ventriloquist dummy. And she names the ventriloquist dummy Slappy. Well, of course, Chris is jealous and Chris wants her own dummy. And eventually her father goes to a secondhand store or used store or whatever it was and buys her a dummy. And she names this dummy Mr. Wood. And of course, Mr. Wood and Slappy are possessed by something and they wreak havoc and they cause nightmares and they cause a whole lot of problems. And actually, it's not Slappy so much as it's Mr. Wood who ends up getting Chris into a whole lot of problems, a whole lot of trouble. At one point, Chris is going to perform at the school assembly, and, of course, the dummy Mr. Wood takes over, starts spewing green slime everywhere, calling the teachers fat and you know, being real obnoxious and, and nasty to these people, and it gets Chris and Lindy into a whole lot of trouble, and, oh, my gosh, the dummies are possessed, they're possessed, they're possessed, and they call, you know, Mr. Wood calls them his slave, and he's going to kill them and all this stuff, and I got to tell you, this was ridiculous for kids are you kidding look i'm the first to tell you i'm a wuss i mean i don't like stuff that are that's scary but a kid's book that scared me i mean come on why are our kids reading stuff like this i mean this is really the kind of stuff that i can hear my daughter screaming in the middle of the night with nightmares who wants to read a story about toys that come to life and threaten to kill their owners. It's one thing for the Toy Story movies where you've got the toys coming to life because they're good and they're funny and they protect everybody and they're looking out for Andy and all that kind of stuff. But do you really want your kid reading a book about a doll that in the middle of the night comes to life and tries to kill her? I, I don't get it. 
I don't understand it. I mean, there's there's tongue-in-cheek funny. There's there's campy funny. I mean, campy scary. Um, there's tongue-in-cheek scary. There's farcical scary. And then there's flat-out nightmarish. And this is flat-out nightmarish. And I don't get it. It, 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 the, the billing on the top is the original series from the Master of Fright. I would never let my kids read this. I just wouldn't because I like to sleep too much. I don't like getting woken up in the middle of the night. And I sure as hell don't want to get woken up in the middle of the night by my kid having nightmares that her dolls are going to kill her. And I know that there were so many other books in this series. This guy wrote however many tens of twenties of hundreds of books, whatever it is. Um, I, I don't get it. I don't know why. You know, I go to the YA section, the young adult section, the kids section in the bookstore, and I am absolutely astounded by the books that are on sale for kids. Aliens and murders and deaths and disease and kids killing each other. And uh, I, I don't get it. I don't understand when why why kids can't be kids anymore. You know when I when I was thirteen years old, that yes, I started reading adult books. I started reading the Leon Uris, and I started reading Scott Turow, and I started reading novels. And I understand the idea about um, trying to get kids to read and, and believing or or expecting that kids are mature enough to deal with adult subjects. And that's not what my problem is. My problem is that. They specifically cater these books for kids. When I read Scott Turow's Presumed Innocent, when I read The Firm, when I read Battle Cry or Exodus or QB7, whatever it was, I knew that I was reading an adult book. I didn't think that I was reading a kid's book. I didn't think that I was reading a book that was specifically geared to me. And yet you look at these YA books like The Hunger Games or Divergent or whatever the other books they are, and you know that they're specifically catering to kids. And I don't understand that. I don't understand why we're in such a hurry to have our kids grow up that we're in such a hurry to have them deal with with intense and and um, adult themes. I don't understand the Hunger Games, kids killing each other. Why? Why do we want our kids reading books like that? Look, if they want to read, you know, if my daughter comes to me at twelve years old and says she wants to read any one of my adult books, you know, books, novels, whatever you want to call it, adult for adults, I'd say go ahead. But you have to understand that they're meant for adults. They have adult themes. They have adult situations. They frequently have bad language. They have sexual scenes. They have adult content. And you have to be mature enough to re be able to deal with that adult content. Now, I remember when I was in junior high, so 12, 13, the books, some of the books that I really liked to read were the, the James Bond books. But the James Bond books that were written at that time, they were taken over by the author John Gardner. And they were campy and they were action adventure, but they also had really good sex scenes. And in seventh or eighth grade, I didn't know what the hell sex scenes were and I was intrigued by them and they were silly. And I remember, you know, taking the book to school and showing it to my friends and I wasn't mature enough to be dealing with those things. But I knew that these weren't kids' books. These weren't books that I would find in the library at my school. The library at my elementary school had, you know, biography of Phil Esposito and the biography of Larry Zonka, okay? The books at my daughter's elementary school library are Percy Jackson and The Hunger Games and all these other books where I, I can't picture a sixth grader reading these things. I don't want a 6th grader reading these things. I don't want a 6th grader or 5th grader or 4th grader or 7th grader or 8th grader given the opportunity to read books that have such adult themes and adult content but are geared towards kids where the author and the publishers of the book are saying, hey kids, come over here. It's okay to read these books. 
I mean, how different is that from the stranger who's driving down the street that says, hey, kids, you guys want some candy? I mean, honestly, I, I, how is that different? How is that different? The, the, you're not supposed to take candy from a stranger, but it's okay to read books with killing and murders and war. But because they're in the packaging of a book for kids, it's okay for them to read it. I don't understand. And, 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 and kids these days are growing up so much faster and I think a lot of it is because of this. A lot of it is because of the Goosebumps books that say, hey, you're eight years old. Let's scare the shit out of you. It's okay. It's a kid's book. Hey, you're 12 years old. Let's scare the crap out of you. Here, we're going to have kids your age, but they're killing each other. It's okay. It's a kid's book. Don't worry. You don't have to get permission from your mom and dad because it's a kid's book. I don't understand. I don't get why we're in such a hurry to have our kids grow up, that we're, we're giving them permission. We're, we're letting the publishers give them permission to read these books. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, my, my daughter right now, she's still reading princess books. She's still reading, and, and she reads at a sixth grade level. She's going into fourth grade. I think she's sixth or seventh grade level at this point. And the book she's reading, Princess Diaries, Ralph S. Mouse, although I think she's too old for those. She's not reading Hunger Games. She's not reading Percy Jackson. She's not reading Haunted House books. She's not reading Treasure Hunters. No, not Treasure Hunters. Um, what's it called? The book with the... I don't remember what it is, but it's the book where the... the, the it takes place in Disneyland, written by Ridley Pearson. I don't remember what it's called. She's not reading those. She's not reading um, John Grisham's books, Theodore Boone. She's not reading Divergent. She's not asking me to take her to the Divergent movies. So, I don't get it. I don't get it. I want my kids to remain, to remain as innocent and youthful as possible. I don't want to force them into growing up so fast. I don't want them to have to deal with adult themes. I don't want to have them deal with death, the fault in our stars, disease. They're going to have the rest of their lives to deal with that kind of stuff because that's daily life once you get older. It's everywhere. It's in the books you read. It's in the movies you see. It's on the news on television. It's the front page headline of the msn.com webpage. My kids have enough time to have to deal with the negative aspects of life. Why do I want to speed that up? Why would we want to speed that up? We create kids who are jaded. We create kids who are skewed about other people. And I think that's a major flaw in society. That people are automatically suspicious of everybody else. There's no friendliness anymore. There's no commonality or community. It takes a national disaster, an earthquake, a 9-11, a hurricane for communities to band together. And one of the reasons why that is is because on a day-to-day -day basis, people believe that, the, that everybody else is the worst of people. I truly think that. And I think that starts, be, and then that's because of the media. And it's because of society's view towards crime. So why do we want to speed up our kids' development in that respect? I don't understand. I don't get it. I mean, it's sad. I, I want my kids to be as young as possible forever. I don't want my kids to grow up. I don't want them to have to enter the society that I'm in. I would love to think that by the time my kids are my age, society is going to be better, but it's not. It's not going to be any more improved. It's going to be the same. It could be worse. Every day there's a new potential for some sort of a destruction. There are people everywhere who hate us, people who hate our country, people who hate our culture, people who hate our religion. Everywhere you look, there's somebody who hates you. And people don't start out that way. When they're kids that are blank slate, and yet we create that. 
parents create that in their children by being role models but being negative role models our media creates that by telling kids about the the nastier sides of life but by giving them permission to to investigate and be exposed to that side of life i don't understand i don't understand our kids are going to become jaded and they're going to be jaded at a younger at a younger age my daughter's finishing third grade and yet she's already dealing with the drama of who sh- who she's allowed to be friends with and bullying and I, I why are we doing it why because we want to sell books because we know that we'll get them to come and see our movies because we know we'll sell advertising space on television because they're going to watch our tv shows everything these days is being designed to be darker and scarier and more violent and all it does is it it's exposed exposes to our children the nasty sides of life why can't it all be princesses and frozen and Olaf and Cinderella. Why does it have to be death and destruction and mayhem? I don't know. And yet, that's my favorite genre of books. That's the stuff I love to read. I'm halfway through. No, I'm 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 more than halfway through with Face Off, the anthology uh, of thriller writers. Twenty-two authors, eleven stories. And and since I've got you here, and I see that it didn't take me quite as long to get through those four books as I expected. <laughs> this is what happens when you wait too long to talk about books. And when I finished the first book, the, uh, the, the Devil's Workshop, I was so excited I couldn't wait to talk about it. And it's been like three weeks since I read it. And Rules of Prey, when I read that one, I had so many thoughts about it, so many things I wanted to talk about. And... Yeah, eh, I I didn't feel the energy tonight to talk about it because, um, I don't know. I it it, I don't need to, I don't need to. But face off the the short story, the uh, the eleven short stories, twenty two authors. As I mentioned, I've read sixteen of those authors. The ones I didn't read: M. J. Rose, Lisa Gardner, Linda Fairstein. Raymond Corey, T. Jefferson Parker, and Joseph Finder. I don't know if I'll read any of them. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, it's interesting. My wife read this book first, and she has not read as many of these authors as I have. In fact, I think she's only read one, two, three, four, five of them. I think she's only read five of the 22. I've got 16. Um, and, And one of her major comments about the book when she finished it was she wondered if the book would have been better if she'd actually been familiar with these characters and i find that i i i think that i like the stories more than she did because i am familiar with these characters because i do know them some of them i know more intimately than others some of these authors i've read all of their characters books others just the one book um dennis lehane michael Connolly, douglas preston lincoln child steve martini um Lee Child. I've I've read all of their characters' books. So these characters to me, they're they're good friends. They're people I'm happy to see again. And I'm happy to see how they interact with the other characters. I've got only three more stories left. Um so I've read eight of them already. And I don't want to talk about all of them in a lot of detail. I'm gonna tell you the highlights. Um, the Dennis Lehane Michael Connolly book involved Michael Connolly's character Harry Bosch and Dennis Lehane's book Patrick Kenzie, who you may know from the Kenzie Gennaro books, also the movie Gone Baby Gone. And I loved the Kenzie Gennaro books. I was turned on to them by a friend of mine and sped through all of them. And Dennis Lehane has not written um, any Kenzie Gennaro books for quite a few years now. So it was really refreshing to see him come back. But I really wish that the story that the two of them were involved in could have been a little bit meatier. Um, some of the stories are short. Some of them are only 20, 25 pages long. Um, some of them are longer. I think the longest one is the Jeffrey Deaver, John Sanford book, Lincoln Rhyme and Lucas Davenport, which is about 60 pages long. So the authors had the flexibility to write what they wanted. And the, the really cool thing about the book is each short story is 
prefaced by an introduction by the editor David Baldacci where he explains kind of the characters and where how the two authors got together and what their mindset was when they were putting the stories together. Um, I'm going to tell you that the, the story that I like the best so far is the one that I believe my wife liked the least. And um, I, what, as she and I were talking about it today, as I was explaining to her why I liked it so much, that was exactly the reason why she didn't like it. And, and that was the Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child book with R.L. Stein, Slappy the Ventriloquist Dummy. And interestingly enough, Slappy the Ventriloquist Dummy's uh, participation in this short story is pretty much exactly the same as it is in Night of the Living Dummy, which is pretty non-existent. He sits in the background, sits by the side, and doesn't really do much. And yet he kind of wields an ominous presence, which has a lot of um, gravity to it. So the concept of the short story, and it was a very short story, um, I want to say, let me look as I look here, it was only 23 pages long, so it was probably even less than that after the introduction. The concept is that Lincoln Child and Douglas Preston's character, Aloysius X. Pendergast, wakes up in some sort of an institution, and he sees his brother and his wife there, and he finds out that... Well, what does he find out, actually? He's told that he's been in a mental hospital or sanitarium for the past six months and that he's a recovering FBI agent who's had a lot of psychological trauma. And what's interesting is, having read all of the Pendergast books, you, you, you kind of fall into this pattern, this rut, not this rut, you fall into this comfort level, this... this suspension of disbelief about Pendergast. And you say to yourself, I'm just going to read the novels. I'm just going to read the mysteries. I have to suspend disbelief about a couple of things. One of the things you suspend disbelief about is the supernatural paranormal aspect of a lot of the books. Uh, there are characters who live long past they should be dead, hundreds of years or 150 years. Character is still alive. You find out that there are man-beasts that have lived in caves and all kinds of different paranormal or supernatural type of phenomenon. And as the reader, you have to suspend this disbelief and you have to just take it for what it is. And we're okay doing that because it's a fun, it's, it's escapist. But one of the other things that you have to suspend your disbelief about is the fact that Pendergast doesn't seem to have any superiors. He doesn't seem to have any rules. He doesn't seem to have an office or anybody who's ever checking up on him. In fact, it seems as if he's able to uh, conduct his business with, imp with impunity. Is that right? With impunity? Without impunity? Without any penalty. He kills people. He solves crimes. He travels all over the world and nobody uh, with the FBI ever seems to give a shit. And what's funny is that concept is what is used by the characters in the story to convince Pendergast that all of that is, un is not real, that it's all fake, that he's actually been living in the sanitarium for six months. And it is, it's kind of like a, um, a tongue-in-cheek slap at the reader in the face. And it's one of those things where, where you, you think that the author is saying to the reader, hey, You've all fallen for it. You all believed that this was real. You all believed that the supernatural phenomenon that Pendergast has, has investigated, the, the murders or the, the criminals he's killed throughout the world, you readers have suspended your disbelief and said, this all makes sense. And now we're going to slap you across the face and tell you how stupid you guys are because you've been believing it all along. And it was hysterical and it was eye-opening. And I read it and I, I read this, this, the part of the story where, where the doctor says to him, you don't really believe all this stuff happened, did you? Did you really believe that somebody lived to be 130 years old? Did you really believe there was this mad beast living? Did you really believe? Did you really? And as the reader, you're sitting there going, yeah. How did I believe that? What led me to think it was okay to suspend my disbelief to that extent that I would believe that these things happen? And at the end of the story, you're not quite sure if it was all a scam, if there were 
people who were trying to take advantage of Pendergast and locked him up in the sanitarium, or if, in fact, he was in the sanitarium for a reason because he's been having these delusions about the cases he works on. And that's where Slappy, the ventriloquist dummy, kind of comes into play just a little bit. Um, but it was... It, it, when I explained that to Amy today as we were talking about the story she she understood but to somebody who is unfamiliar with the character of Pendergast is unfamiliar with all the stories it, the, the this particular short story would make no sense it would have no impact and it wouldn't mean anything and and that's why I really enjoyed this story I think so far most of all because it was written directly for the fans of that character it wasn't written for the casual reader it wasn't written for the guy who's just picking this up and saying oh hey cool um uh short stories i'll pick it up this was that story was specifically written for the fans of the pendergast series now another one of the the stories that i thought was pretty darn good was the story involving Heather Graham and uh, written by Heather Graham and F. Paul Wilson, the Michael Quinn and Repairman Jack story, because it took place in New Orleans, but it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it was an all-inclusive story. Some of the other stories seemed to be kind of snapshots. Um, the Michael Connolly and Patrick Kensry story really was a snapshot, where it takes like two pages to get the reader up to speed with what's going on, 10 or 15 pages to to have the drama play out, and then the story's over. And to me, those are the kinds of stories that I would like really developed, where I like the story, but I would have enjoyed them being developed into full-size books. Um, the That one, the Ian Rankin, Peter James, involving John Rebus and Roy Grace, the um, Jeffrey Deaver, John Sanford book, Lucas Davenport, Lincoln Rhyme. Those stories, in order to keep them within the short story framework, it really requires a rapid ramp up to get the reader up to speed, then drawing out the tension and a rapid conclusion. And it really feels as if somebody wrote a 300 or 400 page book and tried to cram it into 10 pages and did so by cutting a whole bunch of the backstory, the way that the characters come together, the way that the characters individually are working until they end up coming together to work on the crime together. Um, I've got a, a difficulty, a problem with short stories as a whole anyways. I'm not a big fan of short stories. Um, frankly, I don't like the pressure of a short story. And when I say the pressure of a short story, I mean it from the standpoint of you're dealing with, in a short story, you're dealing with brand new characters that you have to immediately become acclimated to. You have to immediately get used to. You have to immediately picture in your head. And then the story's over. And there's a lot of pressure. At least in, in the novels, you have an opportunity to watch the character progress you get an opportunity to travel with the character where you develop a connection to the character. You develop a feeling about the character. You develop a feel for the writer's um, tactics, for the patterns that the writer has. There's a um, Lee Child who writes the Jack Reacher books. He has a very noticeable pattern of the way he writes books, especially the way he writes dialogue. Because his dialogue where he will have somebody say something he'll say he'll give the quote then a period and then he said comma the next quote all is part of the same sentence and it's unusual because my pattern my what i'm used to is and then i came to the store comma i said i saw a coca-cola can instead of and then I came to the store. He said, and then I saw a Coca-Cola can. You understand the difference? It, it, there's a cadence that a reader becomes acclimated to in the writing of the author. And in a short story, you don't have the time to get used to that. So there's so many things going on in a short story. And, and as the reader, you're so limited in time 
as far as your ability to acclimate yourself to the characters, to the setting, to the story, to the writing, to the writing patterns. And it's just, to me as a reader, it feels like too much pressure. I know it's probably the wrong word to use, but it does. It feels like pressure. As I was reading these stories in the book, I felt the pressure of, okay, so I'm going to talk about these. I really have to focus on because I really have to remember all the details. I really have to remember what I felt about this book or that book, or about this story or that story. And it's just, it's the pressure that I just, I, I don't really like. Um, and I like the ability to roll up my sleeves and really get into a character and get into a story. And short stories don't, don't really give you that opportunity. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting um, was in the Jeffrey Deaver John Sanford book um, and it involves Lucas Rhyme and uh, I'm sorry Lucas <laughs> it involves Denzel Washington and Denzel Washington uh, it involves Lincoln Rhyme and Lucas Davenport and you, as you'll recall from the, the review of the Bone Collector by Jeffrey Deaver Lincoln Rhyme is, is paralyzed and there's a, a part of the story you can tell that there's tension between Lucas Davenport and Lincoln Rhyme. And it's interesting, there's a, a part of the story where Lincoln and Lucas are sitting together and they're talking. And I want to make sure I get it because I thought it was very, very interesting. So you can tell that there's tension between Lucas and, and Lincoln. And I, I paused because I really wanted to find the specific place in the story. <sighs> He says, Lucas says to Lincoln, it's just the two of them sitting around talking at some point. He says, look, I know I pissed you off because I was having trouble dealing with your disability. And Lincoln says, you did. You, you pissed me off. And Lucas said, yeah, well, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's purely out of fear. And then Lucas goes to tell Lincoln that he's got this scar on his, on his neck. And the scar on, on Lucas's neck was caused by having been shot through the throat with a 22. And he says, it went through a coat collar, through my windpipe, got to my spine, but not into it. The kid should have killed me. She would have, but there was a doc right there and she did a tracheotomy and kept me breathing until we got to the hospital. But if the kid had had any other kind of gun or if the slug hadn't gone through the collar first, she would have either blown my spine out and I would have been dead on the spot or I would have been like you. It was a matter of a quarter inch or so or any other caliber. I look at you and I see me. And it's interesting because we talked about that when I read The Bone Collector, that there was an aspect of the story of Lincoln Rhyme that was particularly uncomfortable because of the, 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 the thought that, you know, it could happen to us, any one of us. We don't, we don't want to, to, to deal with that possibility, but there's that fear. Um, and it's an uncomfortable position to have to deal with and i i really thought that that was a situation that the two authors when they they talked about putting the story together that they wanted to highlight that because i'm sure i'm not the only person who's ever said that the character of lincoln ryan makes them uncomfortable now the rest of that story as a whole was not that great um i think that there were too many characters involved and despite being 60 pages long um, I wasn't really satisfied with the ending because it felt as if um, the ending was kind of rushed together because of time. I mean, look, these authors are used to writing 300, 400, 500 page books. So it, to ask them to put together a story of suspense with another author and keep it limited to a short number of pages, I mean, it's got to be an incredibly difficult task. Um uh, another book, uh, another story that I really liked was the Raymond Corey Linwood Barclay book. And we talked before, Linwood Barclay does not have um, any characters that he has consistent throughout his, his stories. So the decision to, to take one character out of one of his books was an interesting, um, was an interesting concept. And the Raymond Corey character, whose name is Sean Riley, I've never read before, but he's got to be the same as you know, a Cotton Malone or a, Lee, or a uh, Jack Reacher or, um, you know, a, a Michael Quinn or something like that. And in fact, he employs a lot of those same, a lot of those same characteristics. 
but this story um, involving uh, Glenn Glenn Garber. Is that what his name is? Let's see. His name, let me tell you, was... Don't wait for it. Glenn Garber. I was right. Glenn Garber and Sean Riley. Glenn Garber, who showed up in one of uh, Linwood Barclay's books. And the idea is that Glenn Garber and his daughter are at a pit stop on a long, you know, a, a road trip. And um, her name is Kelly, by the way. I think, yeah, Kelly. And they stop in to get uh, coffee and some chicken nuggets. And there's a disturbance outside in the parking lot. A man has been set on fire. So Glenn drags his daughter outside, puts her in their truck. Daughter is 10 years old. Uh, puts daughter in the truck, says stay here, while Glenn takes a fire extinguisher out of the back of his truck to go put out the fire. Next thing he knows, his truck has been stolen with Kelly inside, and there's a man who stumbles out of the pit stops restroom with blood streaming down his head and um, starts to to chase after the, uh, the truck with Kelly in it. And it's this road, you know, this road chase through uh, wherever the city, I don't know, they don't think it tells you what state it was, but it's this road chase. And it ends up with the bad guy who is driving the car. He's got some weapon of mass destruction that he's going to unleash on the world. And Sean Riley with the FBI needs to stop him. And Kelly and Glenn Garber are just unwitting participants in this um, in this drama, in this this um, of international intrigue. Um, and it was a really good story because it moved really, really quickly. Um, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I didn't feel as if I needed to catch up really quick as to what was going on because it was all described as the story went along. So I really enjoyed that story as well. I'm in the middle of the John Lesquad T. Jefferson Parker character story uh, involving a character named, named Joe Trona from the T. Jefferson Parker uh, books and Wyatt Hunt from the John Lesquad books. And I got to tell you, I'm not really that excited about it because it involves fishing down in Mexico, and I'm not big on fishing. But this is where the short story really is successful because it's only a 20-something page story. So I get through the 20 pages and I get onto something else. The next story is Steve Barry versus James Rollins, and then the one after that, Lee Child versus Joseph Finder, and then I will be done. Um, so I think that's it for the uh, Thriller Fest authors that I'm going to read. I don't really have any desire to read MJ Rose or Lisa Gardner or Linda Fairstein. Um, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to read a Joseph Finder book. I might. Raymond Corey, not such a much. He writes the last Templar books. I don't really have many, much of a desire to read those. Um, but so that's it. And after I finish Face Off... Um, Phil Cohen, my brother, will be back. We've decided we're going to read another Linwood Barclay book together. He wrote um, too close. He wrote, he read too close to home that I talked about on my last episode. So I'm interested to hear what he thinks of that. He read Child 44 by Tom Rob Smith, which I read many quite a few years ago. I really really liked. So I'm interested to hear what he says about that. And we're going to talk about the next book uh, that he and I are reading together, this Linwood Barclay book, which uh, the name escapes me. But anyways, um, that's it for this episode of Book Therapy. I am Rob Cohen. You can find me on Twitter, Book Therapy 13 Please go to iTunes and rate this. I'm not sure if anybody does, if anybody listens. But if you do listen, go ahead and rate it. Let's see if we can't get more people to listen. I'm interested. Um, and if you have any suggestions, please give them to me. I'd love to hear them um, because I'm always looking for brand new books. I, I, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed this last month or two of reading because it was reading without any pressure to me. It was reading without any obligation. It was the opportunity to read authors that I've seen in the bookstore for many, many years and never picked up. Uh, one of the reasons why I never picked up those the books by those authors is because I knew or I was concerned that if I liked the first book, I'd have to be committing myself to read the entire series of books involving those characters and by that author. And with this opportunity and thriller fest and the face-off book the idea of just reading a book to get myself familiar with the characters so that i could read this face-off book so i could attend thriller fest and know who these people were it's really been a, a valuable and enjoyable experience um 
and, and I don't feel any obligation to continue reading. I don't feel like I need to keep reading the Lincoln Rhyme books or the Prepare Man Jack or whatever it is because I read my book. Having read the book served very well so far in the reading of Face Off because I know these characters and I'm familiar with them. It's not, to me, I, I, as I mentioned with the short story, there's the ramp up, there's a very rapid ramp up of you need to get used to these characters because you're going to be with them in an intense pace for a very short period of time. And having read all of those books ahead of time and being familiar with the characters, I, I'm, I'm 10 steps ahead from the minute I start reading that short story. I already know these characters. I'm already familiar with them. I already have ideas in my head of who they are and what they look like and what they like. And and that propels me through the rest of the short story. So um, it's it's been really enjoyable and I'm glad that I had an opportunity to do that. Of course, once I finish Face Off, it's back to the real world as far as my reading goes. I've got the new uh, Stephen King book. I've got the new Tom Rob Smith book called The Farm that I'm looking forward to and a whole bunch more stuff on my bookshelf that I've been sitting on uh, while I've gone through the Thriller Fest authors. So I'm looking forward to that. And obviously, please, 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 booktherapy13 at gmail.com or tweet me at booktherapy13. Let me know if you have suggestions. I'm always open to recommendations. I really would love to hear from you. Uh, So this has been Rob Cohen, and thank you for letting me lie on your couch.